you try to make a geographically distant place, distant place accessible to all these young people who who may not even go to India or who have not been to India, right? So they get a different sense of place and space, and and it spurs um, creativity. Welcome to this episode of the Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhism in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson from the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we sat down with Abhishek Amar. Abhishek is an associate professor of religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York and has been part of that faculty since 2010. Abhishek specializes in the archaeological history of South Asian religions. We met with Abhishek remotely over Zoom and talked to him about his teaching. He teaches about religions with and through material culture and archaeology. So we're calling this episode, Negotiating the Layers, Material History in Our Teaching. My name is Abhishek Singh Amar. I work on archaeological history of Buddhism in South Asia. I have, my PhD was on the site of Bodhkaya, but I have extended my work to other parts of India. Right now I am uh, doing a couple of projects, one of which is trying to, uh, which, which is an attempt to study history of Buddhism between 5th century and 12th century CE. Uh-huh. In India? Um, In India. And I am based at Hamilton College in upstate New York, where I teach courses on South Asia. So my teaching includes courses on all of South Asian religions, predominantly Mm -hmm. Buddhism, Hinduism, and a little bit of Islam, because now we have somebody doing Islam here. And what is the landscape like at Hamilton College? Who are your students and what are their interests? Well, uh, Hamilton College is a liberal arts college, and we have an open curriculum where we don't really enforce structure upon uh, on students when they arrive. So for the first three semesters that they are here, they can explore different disciplines before they go on to decide what they would like to major in. Even though I'm in the religious studies department, my courses are cross-listed with history, art history. So that tells you that we are trying to create dialogue across different curriculum. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, students, they, they go through these courses. They, they're interested in South Asian religions. My courses often, I mean, specifically my Indian Buddhism course that I've taught for the last nine years has been filled every year. And there has always been a long list, of, long waiting list. Yeah, a lot of interest in study of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, which is why now that we have a person doing Islam, I am going to offer another seminar course on Buddhism next semester, which is called Buddhism, Business and State. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I want to hear about both of these. So tell us first about uh, your Indian Buddhism course. What is this course set up to teach students and how do you do it? So this course is an introduction to history of Buddhism in South Asia. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's the main goal of the course, that I want to introduce them to South Asia through study of Buddhism. So... When I, when I go to the first class, I see 18 to 20-year-old students who, are, who have some familiarity of Buddhism because they have been told about Buddhism in the school curriculum in America or wherever they are coming from. And then the first conversation we have is about what is Buddhism? What do they know about Buddhism? And their perceptions are, oh, Buddhism is a philosophy. Buddhism is a rich religion without ritual. Well, they don't even use the word religion, Mm. right? Buddhism to them is cool, much more appealing, and are very peaceful. Those are the perceptions that they bring to the class. Mm -hmm. And then my goal then is set up to help them understand the diversity of Buddhism or to question these stereotypes as Buddhism has been presented in the West or everywhere else, even in India, I think, for that matter. So... In this course, then I try to introduce them to different methodologies that have been used for study of Buddhism that scholars continue to engage with. One, to give them sense of uh, how Buddhism is also embedded in everyday life of South Asia historically. So talk mm-hmm. about that. Um, often study of Buddhism is linked to texts. And one of my goals is to explain the material side of Buddhism. Interesting. So when you say that you expose students to um, the materiality of Buddhism, how do you do that? So the first thing there is, the first important um, 
thing is to figure out a textbook that works, that, that shows a lot of images, that, so that students can see the visuality. So I have used, I have used Rupert Gethin in the past, but Gethin is a very dense textbook. Mm-hmm. It, it works, but it doesn't have images. It doesn't really convey the idea of Buddhism being embedded to material culture. So I've used uh, Kevin Trenner for the last couple of years, which has worked well. Because the ideas there are presented very succinctly, but there are a lot of images with information that mm-hmm. students can think about, right? I mean, our goal in, in a 100 level, in an introductory course, is to make them think. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, uh, the way I have structured the course. So the course is divided in four four or five different sections. The first section is actually introduction where we talk about the discipline and the approaches, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the articles that I make them read is Gregory Chopin, uh, the one that he's written on Protestant presuppositions. Right, archaeology and, and Protestant presuppositions in the study of Indian Buddhism. Buddhism, yes, yeah. that's the article that I use. So with that article, it's important to emphasize how Buddhism has emerged as a discipline and how it has been shaped by Protestant presuppositions that has dominated the study of religion. Not just Buddhism, but every other religion, I would say, across um, the world. Yeah. So, so can you summarize, it, by the way, for our listeners who won't be familiar necessarily with Gregory Chopin's work? So what is his what is his key argument in that piece and others? What is he what does he mean by Protestant presuppositions and how did they influence the early study of Indian Buddhism? Well, I think in that article, what Chopin is trying to do is emphasize how archaeological sources, predominantly epigraphical sources, has been treated as a supplementary source, which hasn't been given its own weight, right? Mm -hmm. He makes an argument that if you look at material culture independently and treat them as an independent source that can help you develop some interpretive framework, the story of Buddhism that we get is vastly different from the one that we get from mere reading of texts. Right. Right. So, so it's not necessarily using, a story of a philosophical debate, but rather that there was a huge amount of lay involvement very early from men and yeah, women, and, right? Uh, yeah. Not just that, but also how the making of Buddhism is not just about Sangha. It's also about people. It's also about all the different actors. Mm-hmm. So the agency is not confined to Sangha. Mm-hmm. Right. Sangha is the dominant. I mean, the texts that have come to us have come predominantly through Buddhist tradition, right? The monastic tradition. But when you look at material culture, you begin to see other actors involved in the process. And that opens up the possibility of exploring Buddhism from other sides, right? The yeah. fact that there is the idea of relationship between Buddhism and trade or Buddhism and irrigation, Buddhism and environment, right? So those possibility or or Buddhists were not simply speculating about philosophy all the time, but were actively engaged in rituals or practices that helped them develop these long-term links with society. So those are the things that we need to emphasize in order to question the stereotypes with which they come to the first class when they're Mm -hmm. talking about Buddhism as a philosophy, or they're thinking of Buddhism as an answer to the sufferings of the world, or, or Buddhism as being very peaceful religion, because the story then you get from material culture is vastly different. That, in a way, sets up the course for me. That's why I start with the beginning of study of this discipline, how Buddhism came to be developed as a discipline, and what are the methods that have been used. And so that's what I ask students to think and reflect in the first section of the course. And then we move on to the basics of the course, where we talk about triple gem, so Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Mm -hmm. But I don't stop there. I have also included a separate section on laity, because laity needs to be given agency in the making of Buddhism early on. So all of these three, triple gem, make sense only when there is laity when Mm -hmm. they're in dialogue with each other. Mm -hmm. So Triple Gem in that section includes Lady. And once we have covered that, then we move on um, to the third section where we think about expansion and localization of Buddhism. And I do this section specifically to emphasize how there is no one way of thinking, no one method of studying Buddhism. When you think about localization, you begin to see different manifestations of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. which is evident also in material culture. So the Mm -hmm. stupa designs that you see in Western India is vastly different from what you encounter in Northern India, Eastern India, where Buddhism originated. Mm -hmm. Or or the... so, So... with the expansion and localization, we also begin to see how laity is involved or how royalty is involved in the process of expansion and how 
all of these shape Buddhism by beginning of say image worship and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then we move to the fourth section where we talk about new schools competition and decline. I, I, yeah, so news, I mean, there's a challenge here because we are trying to cover too much, but it's a, an introductory course and I just want to give them a lay of the land. Mm -hmm. And then we come back in the fifth section to the revival of Buddhism to the 19th and 20th century and how study of Buddhism, emergence of Buddhism as a discipline of study has shaped newer movements within Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So, and in that, again, my focus is not predominantly on the 20th century modernist movement, but also on how several Buddhist sites that were excavated and found, discovered in the 19th and 20th centuries have been renovated, have been reclaimed, and have become active places of um, worship amongst the Buddhist community, how Buddhist communities continue to engage with them. Right. We end up almost going to the UNESCO things, UNESCO tagging of some of these sites, which we talked briefly about. Sites that's, like, that's where I end the case. Like Bodh Gaya no, yeah. uh, and Nalanda. Bodh and more, more recently Nalanda. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was involved in the preparation of dossier for Nalanda. And, mm -hmm. um, so, so, I, I know that's where I have inside information that how these things happen. So I reflect on that experience as well as how I've read the whole dossier for both Kaya and other things. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Can you give us a sort of sample from your either your work on Bodh Gaya or your knowledge of Nalanda, what does a closer attention to the to the history of those sites in the 19th and 20th century show us? Because I know that you've done some really interesting and careful work on the history of the reconstruction and the way that these sites have been kind of modernly monumentalized. And these are in some ways fictions that we're still, you know, propagating and participating in. There are a number of things that we can talk about, but let me give you one example. So Bodh Gaya is a classic example of how how it has become a site of a site which is imagined as a Buddhist center of the world in the 19th and 20th century. And all of that is predicated on the developments that happened in the 19th century. So the discovery of site or the early reconstruction in 1880s led to multiple claims on the site. So I don't want to go into historical details here, mm -hmm. but the one point that I want to emphasize is that with the modernist movements that were beginning to emerge in the late 19th century, we see the site reconstructed and immediately after that we see Mahabodhi Society of India emerging on the scene or Japanese Buddhists emerging on the scene, trying to make a claim on the site, mm -hmm. which led to a court case, prolonged court case, which was eventually decided after India achieved its independence in 1950s. Mm -hmm. So independence in 1947, but the settlement of the Bodh Gaya case in 1950s, I think it's 52 or 55. Mm -hmm. I don't remember that exact year. So, but when you look at the site itself, the reconstruction model itself, you will see that it was not based on what what was recovered archaeologically. It was mm -hmm. based on a textual reconstruction of the site. So the scholars working in the 19th century, like Cunningham and others, relied extensively on Chinese pilgrim accounts to reconstruct the site. Mm. Now, what you when you go to Bodh Gaya today, what you see is how this archaeologist Alexander Cunningham in 19th century read this Chinese travel account. It's mm. not what was there on the ground. Right, right? so he's so looking process, back at Xuanzang and determining and Fashian and, yeah. and determining on the basis of their descriptions of Bodh Gaya, what should be reconstructed. Yeah, if you look at his papers, you realize that he is making a literal map of the textual account. And then whenever, so he's digging and if a sculpture comes out and if so and then said, oh, three steps from here, you will find mm -hmm. an image. And or three steps from here, you will find a stupa. And that's where Buddha accepted food from Indra. Mm -hmm. So for him, that's the sign marking Indra, Buddha and Indra's dialogue there, right? Mm -hmm. So he imagined it in that manner. So it doesn't really, so the, in the process, 
we have lost archaeological context and we we don't really know what exactly was there and how to make sense of the material over right. there. So what he's not considering today? the site of the 12th century or the 13th century as it yeah. as the temple would have still been in use by then. Um, he's, or it continues to be used till 15th and, century. Right. I think we have evidence of yeah. the temple being used for 15th century. So what we have is 7th century replica of... Um, a, I mean, a, a, mm-hmm. a site that lasted for such a long period, almost mm-hmm. one and a half millennia, I think. Mm-hmm. So what we experience today is that 7th century reconstruction. Now, that has become the model for everybody. So when you go to the site, that's what you experience. When you look at UNESCO uh, report and the, the dossier that was prepared for UNESCO to consider Bodh Gaya's status as a World Heritage Site, you see that report being replicated. So mm-hmm. they are not talking about other things. So in a way, it's also led to like decontextualization of the site. So Bodh Gaya for everybody is that temple complex. Just behind the temple complex, there's a huge mound and three uh, remains of stupas have been, uh, three remains of monasteries have been found. But nobody goes to these sites. These sites have not even been conserved. So the relationship mm-hmm. between the temple and its surroundings is not even evident to people. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes there. I mean, there, there are hundreds of tourists who go to Bodh Gaya today. But this decontextualization decontext- is a method of archaeology that continues to shape the way Buddhist sites or religious sites are studied even today, unfortunately. Yeah. And so I, I think an important part of my work and something that I also try to convey in my courses is how to relate context. And you can do that also by looking at the broader landscape and how a particular site relates to its landscape. I can give you another example um, of how the study of early medieval Buddhism has often emphasize links between Buddhist monastic institutions and royalty. And the fact that Buddhist Sangha was dependent extensively upon the royal patronage. And that has gone on for far too long. It's because we don't really go out in the landscape and do a landscape survey. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in the Gaia district, based on uh, 20 years of survey that I have conducted, I found more than 350 Buddhist sites with Buddhist material remains Mm. from early medieval period. So this idea that Sangha is an isolated institution with no social links whatsoever, which was dependent upon royal patronage and had become so lazy that they were not even getting out, is a false notion. And what type and of remains are you finding, by the way, in these in these village sites that you're locating? These the are... ma- majority of them have sculptures. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have stupa remains as well, I would say, and a uh, number of funerary votive stupas, but majorly sculptural remains, which mm-hmm. tells you that the Sangha was out there. There is a link between sculptural production that is going on at the monastic sites, but some of these sculptures were also at all of these villages. So I call mm-hmm. them settlement shrines in my work, mm-hmm. that these are settlement shrines where people were coming on a daily basis, engaging with Buddhism, which in a way created concrete links between them and Buddhism. So this idea that there is no lay patronage in the early medieval period, is false. It's and the false. fact that, Mona, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it's totally false because people have not really gone out in the landscape and, and try to look at this connection. You've also started to do some really interesting work in digital humanities and your Sacred Sites in India project is a website that is uh, that already has a whole bunch of sites from Gaia on it. So can you tell us a bit about that project and how how it's going to develop in the future? So Sacred Centers of India project started um, with the aim of organizing all the data, archaeological data that I had collected over the last 15, 20 years. It started in 2013. So my goal was to develop a structure in which I can uh, put all the data and begin to see patterns. That was the initial goal. So I thought, okay, let me start with Gaia because Bodh Gaya has been studied a lot and there, there's, there are a lot of materials from Bodh Gaya in different museums. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can think about Bodh Gaya a little later, but let me just look at Gaia first because Gaia is less complex. I mean, historically, it's as complex as both guys would say, but in terms of material remains, there is a lot on the ground that you can still see and work with. Yeah. What is the physical relationship between Gaia and Bodh Gaya? So Gaia and Bodh Gaya are 10 kilometers apart, Mm. and we often don't acknowledge the relationship between the two because one is Gaia is a Hindu pilgrimage center known for its funerary rituals, and Buddhism, Bodh Gaya is the center of 
I mean, Bodh Gaya has been the paradigmatic center of Buddhist world because of the story of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But we often overlook the relationship between the two. The fact that Buddhism has also been linked to funerary rituals, Buddhism, I mean, and, and you see that link in Bodh Gaya also because when Cunningham excavated the site, he found hundreds of votive stupas, right? So that funerary remains and it's linked to Bodh Gaya is not something that scholars have expounded upon or looked carefully upon. That's one thing that is still missing from the scholarship. So I started by Gaya and, and my initial concern was, let me look for all the Buddhist remains that are continuing to, that are still being worshiped in the Hindu temples of Gaya. Mm. And then I started surveying and I collected all the material. So with the sacred center, the goal was to organize the material and present it in a way so that these material remains became accessible. But also there is a documentation for people to look back on. A lot of these Hindu temples are inaccessible to non-Hindus, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, there's a huge problem of smuggling in the area. A number of sculptures from Gaya, Bodh Gaya region has been stolen. And I came across stories from almost every village or almost every shrine in Gaya where there are stories of um, smuggling, stealing and smuggling. Mm -hmm. So, Sure. And because this is also still a very uh, unstable and poorer area of India, right? That this is in Bihar state? Yeah, yeah. I mean, despite the fact, I mean, the other side of it is that there is so much Mm. that people don't really think of doing something with it, right? I mean, there is so much that if one gets stolen, nobody is, Mm. I mean, it gets reported in the local media, but there is no concerted attempt to educate the people about their own heritage. I think now there is more awareness because uh, when I go to field sites, I talk to people, but there are also other bodies in the state that are trying to educate people about their own heritage. I think people care about these cultures, but they, they can't do anything about it. I mean, they can go to the police report, and, and I don't think stealing of sculptures is a priority for the police, given the pressures that they work with. So my goal was to at least create a database. And so I so far, I've done 20 temples. There's a database available on the website. And in the process, I also ended up doing a virtual model of 3D model, or virtual and 3D model of Vishnu Pada Temple, which is the main temple, the impo- most important funerary, uh, funerary shrine in Gaia itself. Mm-hmm. And that has one or two Buddhist sculptures as well, I would say. Mm-hmm. So it has been a useful experience because we did it twice. The modeling, one was based on the drawings that I did, and the other was based on laser technology. So I could see the difference in technology and how you can try to recreate something on the models, on the drawings and pictures, and there are limitations to it. Whereas with the changing platform, technological platform, you can do a laser scan, which will get you everything accurate. Yes. Right? Fantastic. These are the... So your later scan you used like a GIS technology or something? Yes, it it is GIS, but it's like a laser scanner. So Mm -hmm. you take it to a shrine and then... Basically, it moves 360 degrees and captures everything, not just the structure Mm -hmm. and the details, but also sculptures. And then you can model the sculptures as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, so based on these two models, I have tried to write a couple of articles, but at the same time, use them for my classes. How do you use it in class? How do you share that with students? And what do you have them do with uh, how do you first of all, how do you show them the VR model? (laughs) So, so VR comes in, I mean, that has to be a context, academic context. The academic context there is that I make them read a lot of stuff on Gaia and both Gaia first. Yes. Right? So we spend two weeks doing that. So so first they have to read a couple of accounts from 19th century and a couple of accounts from 20th century, right? And then we then I take them to the lab because one way of experiencing the site is by reading descriptions. And that's what they have read. Okay, 19th century, this is how the site looked. 20th century, this is how the site looked. And now with the VR, they're experiencing how it looks in reality, right? It's virtual reality, right? So they're experiencing the site. And when I was doing the laser scans, I could also capture the moments of ritual. So mm-hmm. there is a priest sitting next to the shrine. There are people coming in. There are pilgrims walking out. They're doing their puja. All of those things are captured. So they, they experience that. And so in a way, you try to make a geographically distant place accessible to all these young people who who may not even go to India or who have not been to India, right? So they get a different sense of place and space. And and it spurs um, creativity and, and they want to 
um, do different types of projects. So one of the things that comes out of this experience is an assignment. And for that, I have created a number of um, options. So one of which is that they can do something creative. Two, they can form a group and reenact the ritual mm-hmm. um, by making a copy virtual uh, replica of the shrine and and do that and, and enact the ritual. Or third, they, the ones who don't want to go into any of these creative sites can have, will have to write a blog where they are thinking about the ritual and the space by engaging with the images from the database. So they can choose images from the database and work with them two or three to write a blog post of 2,000 words. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this spurs creativity. This gives them an experience of where the world is technologically and how they can not think of religious studies or history of material culture in a very limited manner, but how this could lead to all sorts of different things. Students have done a lot of creative things, a lot of creative projects from making a game to writing a storybook to paintings. and, And I think the most interesting one most recent one was a student created a game on ah, and what was the like goal of, the, of what was the goal of the game or how did it work <laughs> well i think it was like a board game where they were trying to like if you do i mean they were like um understanding kind of the res- reciprocity of the like, of uh, well, temple understanding worship the geographical, yeah the geographical landscape and interrelationship between the shrines and how if you visit this shrine, you get a karma point and things like that. So so there is the game side of it, which could be imagined as a game, virtual game, if you want to. But the other side of this is that they have to understand the landscape and the temples and the shrines and how visitors, when they come, they are not confined to one shrine, but they go to two or three or five different shrines to perform the rituals. So the interrelationship between those shrines becomes more evident in the game. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the goal is not simply to make it fun, but also to educate them about the context, the landscape, the spatiality and interrelationships between them. My goal is now to work with this format for the Bodh Gaya site. Mm-hmm. The challenge there is that a lot of material from Bodh Gaya was taken away in the 19th and 20th centuries to different mm-hmm. museums of the world. Mm-hmm. So how so do I try... So a lot I of it is probably in the British Museum and... British Museum, um, Victoria and Albert Museum, mm-hmm. uh, Berlin. Um, so I think it's everywhere. I mean, you can find one or two pieces from Bodh Gaya in virtually every museum sure. in the world. Sure. But then a so, digital project that brought those pieces back together would be really fruitful. Yes, it'll be a huge resource for a number of scholars who are or, or young people who want to explore a study of material culture or are interested in the study of Buddhism. I mean, even now, if you look at um, the other Buddhist sites, you will realize that there is a lot of work on Bodh Kaya, but comparatively, there is not much work on other important Buddhist sites, other three life event sites. Lumbini, Lumbini. very few works. Sarnath, very few works. I mean, you have a lot of art historians writing about the material from Sarnath, but there is no archaeological study of the site apart from the excavation report itself, which you cannot consider a study. And then you have very few works on Kushinagar. I mean, recently my students in Indian Buddhism were doing their projects on these Buddhist sites, which is part of the last assignment in this course, Indian Buddhism course. And they start by developing a bibliography. And then when they started looking for material, they couldn't find much on Kushinagar and Lumini. There are very few pieces that have been written on these sites, which tells you that, yes, we know a lot about Buddhism now than we did in the past. But even now, many of these important sites have not do not have sophisticated scholarship yet. Sure, there's a lot of evidence then that hasn't really been considered. We're still building a house of cards based on <laughs> not a full deck of cards. <laughs> well, and and uh, that's true. I mean, I, I'm happy that at least there is more work on both guys. At least one side has attracted a lot of attention. Yeah. But then that's, I guess, tied also to the world heritage status. That's also tied to Mm-hmm. Flows of global look. capital, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The modern um, means that, mm-hmm. that we often mm-hmm. see operating and shaping the future of these sites. And But that's that's not the case with several other sites. When you expose students and, and I guess also the wider public through this website to these uh, 
originally Buddhist sculptures that are now in Hindu contexts. Has there been any fear or concern from the Hindu temples themselves that this would spur a kind of interreligious conflict? And also, what are you hoping to emphasize to students about the, the kind of dynamics of different religious contacts across time in, in this transition? It's not just for Gaia, but even while surveying the landscape in in all of that region, South Bihar region, I would say, I've encountered a number of villages where Buddhist sculptures are being worshipped as Hindu gods and goddesses. I can give you five examples at the top of my head where I've seen Buddhist male, male sculptures being worshipped as Hindu goddesses, mm-hmm. right? So like a stone bodhisattva or something. I'm imagining yeah, yeah, like a is. small pala stone... Well, they're big also. I mean, they're like big, six yeah? feet tall. Oh, wow. Big. Yeah. And, and I could identify because of the formula, the stile pratitsamutpa that is incised on these sculptures, that these are Buddhist sculptures. Or I, because I was working with the permission of the state, I was able to open cloth and, and see some of these sculptures. That's how I was able to make mm-hmm. a, a, decide that, okay, this is a Buddhist sculpture being worshipped as a Hindu sculpture. I mean, as an archaeologist, when I went for the first time to these places, I myself did not feel comfortable. I felt because I guess I was too focused. My focus at that time was too narrow. But now, after 10 years, I, I, I see how these cultures have not had one life, but multiple lives. Mm-hmm. And the context itself has changed over a period of time. So with new context comes new story, new tradition. I mean, tradition itself is not a static thing or sculptures. We may see sculptures, we can pin it, pin it down to a particular context, facial, temporal context. But when you look at what's going on now, you can also see how they have shaped the local geographies over a period of time. Like I can give you one particular example where you have a Buddhist sculpture like that, a male bodhisattva being worshipped as a Hindu goddess. And there's a whole tradition of how this place has emerged as a mini sacred center in that geograph, in that area. So, and it's a place of a popular fair and has been like that for the last 200, at least 200 years, because I get, we can get a couple of accounts from early 19th century, like Hamilton Buchanan, who visited the place, or Alexander Cunningham, who visited the place in the late 19th century. So, so these sculptures have multiple lives, and the context has changed. With the changing context comes new story, new meaning, you cannot think of material culture it's, or the, these materials as stagnant, but adding and changing and transforming meaning to the place, mm. right? Place making. So you can think about different themes if you start looking at the context and the material and the dialogue between the two, the, how the, those dialogues have gone on for centuries and how, and, and if and you continue, look carefully, yeah. You can, yeah, if you look at them carefully, you can also unlayer the layers mm. that we encounter at these sites. So, my initial goal was just to document the material, think about it from Buddhist perspective. But now I also think about how they make sense today, how they are being used today, how people incorporate with them. That place is really interesting because we have a story that um, this sculpture, which is a Buddhist, is actually that of a lady who was a pious lady. And she, the local king, apparently um, had a bad eye on her and he tried to molest her. And so she... Uh, invoked her deity and the, the deity turned her and the king into stone, mm. right? So I wanted to see who this king is and if there is a sculpture of the king, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went looking for that. And then at that turned out to be a six-week sculpture of Buddha. Wow. So, booty, so you went and booty, asked, where's the king? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the king is Buddha and this figure is also a Bodhisattva. So you can see how these materials have been reinterpreted and make sense in different ways to people. Yeah. So, and, and both of those shrines are in the village. Yeah, interesting. So how do you help your students to understand and negotiate these complex layers? Because what you're talking about then is not a simplistic history, but one with many, many facets and reinterpretations. So you're asking them to not, to not rely on the idea that, you know, a his, one historical point of origin provides the full meaning and context for any piece, but rather that all these layers contribute to an ongoing process of meaning making. So how do you help them move past kind of black and white thinking, which is, I'm sure, their first recourse? 
Yeah, I, I think they come with the black and white, the idea that they will get this clear black and white differentiation. And my goal is to introduce the nuances and tell them to think about meaning making and how it's not a one-time exercise, it's a continuous process, right? So the, they, they know that the words that I use very often in the classroom is complex, complicated, right? And, and that, that begins to shape their thinking as well, right? So when we talk about a material, talk about a particular image and think about the meaning in the, uh, say, second century or third century of the common era, and then how that image, how, for instance, how Buddha has been represented in Mathura or Gandhara or in the fifth uh, century uh, Sarnath or ninth century Nalanda, right? They can see that there is no one way of thinking about Buddha. There are multiple ways in which we can think about Buddha. And then if you compare that with the text itself, right? Mm-hmm. Textual stories, right? And the fact that there is no archeological evidence to prove that there was somebody called Buddha. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the, asking these questions is really important. And then I open the class for class discussion. One of the strategies that we emphasize in liberal arts curriculum is um, helping them learn to communicate their ideas as succinctly as possible in a classroom setting. So I, I am open for classroom discussion and I tell them that I will not call you out. Uh, I, I respect whatever you are saying, as long as you have done the readings, right? I mean, it's based on your thinking and your understanding of the material. So the classroom is a space where they can freely express their ideas based on their reading, their interpretations. And and I think when you have students talking in the class and you you begin to see that there, there is no one way to think about it. There are multiple ways. So they're not just learning from me, but also learning from their peers who have read the material, who are looking at these images and trying to interpret them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a two-way process. I think it's it's not one way to, it's not just me imparting the knowledge. And it's possible at a place like Hamilton because the classrooms are really, right. classroom sizes. Yeah, so mean, you, we have 15 to 18 students. Right, you might have only level class. 15. Okay, so do you, and this, I mean, this is something that we all struggle with, but do your students come having done all the readings? Yes, I think um, a key goal there is to, one, give readings that they can work with. So yeah. I told you, I used Gethin, and I realized that they were not reading all of it because it was very dense. Whereas if you look at Trainer, Trainer is written in a much more accessible manner. The pieces mm-hmm. are short, right? So I give them Trainer, but at the same time, I also assign another reading, which could be a secondary piece, or it could be a primary source, a description, an inscription, or a fragment from text. I've used uh, John Strong's experience of Buddhism and different stories, which are short with a little bit of commentary. Mm-hmm. So, for so you find short po- things for them, yeah. I, and accessible I, I feel things. that yeah, accessible and short is really important. Yeah, because I. Uh, I feel that the attention level that we have now, I mean, the attention span that we have now for these students is really short. So you have to keep them engaged. And I think giving them readings that they can work with is better than assigning. I mean, if I assign them all articles by Chopin, I don't think they're going to read it. <laughs> yeah. But if I give them Kevin Trenner, along with experience of Buddhism piece where there is a commentary, right? I mean, you have to give something to hold on to that they can work with. So the commentary in the experience, in uh, Strong's book really helps them think about ideas and then they read the piece. And I, I think we want to spend enough time in the classroom talking about these readings, the context and setting it up so that we can have a dialogue, an informed dialogue. Yeah. Right. So there is always a challenge to balance between discussion and lecture. Yes. Yes. So, so you have to give the context and then let the discussion flow and it, it gets there. Some days you are not very happy. You may not be satisfied, but most days it's fine. I mean, the day you have to teach emptiness, that's a day you dread, right? How do you explain <laughs> emptiness? Because you can't really take a sculpture and explain emptiness. Right? So, yeah. so there are challenges as well when you are teaching an introductory course. Um, but it's also fun if they are engaged and they are talking yeah. And and the time they, they do talk. Our students do talk, I yeah. would say. And so and you you've alluded to the concept of emptiness being particularly hard to teach succinctly through your material culture lens. But are there any concepts that you've found particularly fruitful to explain in class with material? 
any creative ways that you've done that? Well, um, the fact that we they, they get to write their final research paper by looking at a theme that we have experienced, that we have discussed in the class, mm. and they relate that to a particular site. So the research that they do to develop their annotated bibliography, then they do a presentation on the site, and then they end up writing, then they write their assignment where they have to engage with images. So their final papers includes a couple of images that they are interpreting uh, in relation to a particular site. So I, I think those are ways in which we can reinforce the idea of embedded nature of Buddhism and materiality. And and they get it, which is why they... So I think the, the assignments in this course are structured in that manner. The first assignment is a reflection on methodology. So they're writing about text, material, culture, and which one is more useful. And I don't say that you have to argue that material culture is more useful. Are there ways in which you can bring together... Right? So they're reading not just critique of scholars working on material culture about text, but they're also reading the other set of material. Mm-hmm. And the second one is about Triple Gem and Leite, where they write a short reflection piece on Sangha or Leite. The third one, expansion localization, where they have explored a theme, and that's where inscriptions and other materials come to fore. And then the final assignment, where they have to engage with material culture because they have to think of a site. I mean, every reading that they've done has to be done in the context of a site. Mm-hmm. They have to correlate that. So so I think by the end of it, they, the last conversation that I had uh, last week was this particular aspect that what did you learn from the class? And and then they, and I asked them, what think about your answers on day one. So the first day when they taught of Buddhism as a philosophy devoid of any rituals or it's only about suffering or there are all these, right? And then at the end, they are thinking about the site, they're thinking about material culture, they're thinking about ways in which images are so powerful and play such an important role in shaping of Buddhism, right? So even if they take that away from the class, I'm happy and satisfied. Yeah. yeah. And can you tell us a bit, little bit about um, the course that you're developing to start next term called Business, Buddhism and the State? Is that it? Yeah. Business, Buddhism and the <laughs> yeah. State. What are you Buddhism, planning there? Buddhism, What's, business and state. Oh, Buddhism, well, I, business I, and the state. Yeah. Well, I, you know, this is something that comes out of my own interest. So, Number of scholars have worked on Buddhism and trade, right? Number of scholars have worked on Buddhism and irrigation, right? So somehow we still have not emphasized. I mean, my my own understanding is that now I am beginning to work more on how Buddhism was rooted in society, how it had all of these links that helped Buddhism sustain itself for a longer period of time, uh, specifically in the early medieval period when you have lots of material culture. So my goal is to somehow create more sustained dialogue on early medieval period when we have a lot of inscriptions, a lot of materials to think about links between Buddhism, business, and state. Um, Again, I mean, this is a course that I'm still, I I haven't written the uh, syllabus yet. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm still writing, Mm -hmm. and hopefully I can tell you more in the future. But my goal is to explain the links because, and this will build up on my Mm-hmm. intro course where I try to do a whole survey versus having a thematic focus on maybe expansion, localization, relationship with the Sangha, relationship with the royalty, relationship with the mercantile community. Those are the three things that I would like to focus upon. But rather than doing the whole survey, I'm going to focus these on specific sites. So maybe I'll divide the course into three sections and what's one section will emphasize, explain basics of Buddhism and the other two will emphasize link between Buddhism and business, Buddhism and state. And, and while doing that, we will focus on specific sites. Mm-hmm. So, so that way we get to study a site from a very detailed perspective. We look at like Nalanda. Mm-hmm. Nalanda has been worked upon a lot but, and there's a lot of material that has not even been touched. So, my goal is that when we are looking about Buddhism and business, we can look at Nalanda and think about its relationship to landscape, its relationship to the local political bodies, its uh, control over the land and how, how it managed all the resources that it had, all the land grants that it had. Mm-hmm. So maybe looking more carefully at inscriptions, looking more carefully at the seals, looking more carefully at all the material remains. Because we under, when we say Nalanda, we say, oh, this is a medieval university, early medieval university or something. We don't really think of Nalanda as something that was there in the 7th century, which was different from the 9th century, which was different from the 10th or 11th. Mm-hmm. So I want to unlayer 
these different layers. And how it was developing. Well, Interesting. Yeah. And I assume also when you're sharing these sites with your students, you're able to do it through a lot of your own photo photographs as well, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm using, yeah, lots yeah, of my own yeah. photographs of the sites. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've tons of, I mean, it's obviously on the, I mean, I work on materiality of Buddhism and, and that's what I'm hoping again to yeah. emphasize throughout the course. Yeah. It's wonderful too, that you're then really able to continuously develop your own research also in tandem with your teaching, right? You're developing. That's, that's, that's the other goal that mm. I have taught courses. So death and dying was related to a project on Gaia, both Gaia, and it, it kind of intersected. So in a way, my research and teaching, how they come together, death and dying course was a good example. And I've done that for years. It's an established course. It attracts very good enrollments. It's a seminar course. So our seminar courses are capped at 12. Mm. So it's a small group, but there's a lot of discussion in the class. And similarly, this is going to be a small group of 12 students. And some of them have taken Indian Buddhism. So they are familiar with the basics of Buddhism. And now we'll dive deeper into some of these questions about Buddhism, links between Buddhism, business, and state, mm -hmm. which um, which should yeah, lead to good good discussion, fascinating yeah. discussion. Yeah. Now, um, I wanted to ask you about, we've all been shaped, of course, through the years of our being and thinking and writing and researching. So can you tell us about your own kind of history and formation in, in a nutshell? How did you come to study this topic? How did you get interested? And then how did you pursue the training in it? Yeah, well, um, my own background is I am from the state of Bihar. <laughs> which is the land of Buddhism. I mean, the name Bihar comes from Bihar, as you know. Uh, number one, I come from the place Vaishali. So when I was doing my master's, um, one of the MS seminars that I uh, did was on archaeology of Buddhism with Himanshu Ray at the time. And that was on the site of Vaishali. So that was my mm -hmm. initial interest in Buddhism. And um, having some good teachers at JNU, was really crucial in shaping my interest in study of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So that was step one. And then step two, I ended up doing MPhil at JNU. And for my MPhil, I decided to work on the eight sites linked to the life events. And then I realized, even though I wrote my MPhil on that, I realized how limited that was because there is so much material, not much work. Yeah. So when I decided to do PhD, I decided to focus exclusively on the site of Bodh Kaya. Because Bodhgaya has a lot of scholarship, but a lot of many, most of the scholarship has focused exclusively on the art historical material, looking specifically at the site, Mahabodhi site. Mm -hmm. Right? So scholars have talked about other monastic sites in the region and have looked at the sculptures, but they haven't done a study of archaeological context, which is what I was more interested in. So as I understood the lay of land in the scholarship and and physical landscape. I realized that my strength would be to study Buddhism by looking at the broader social, political, and economic context in which Buddhism emerged and how Buddhist institutions related to this context in order to sustain themselves at a site like Bodhgaya, right? So the story of Bodhgaya is not confined to the 19th century excavated context, but to a much larger landscape. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was trying to explore. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say my experience uh, in JNU while doing my MA MPhil and the fact that I come from state of Bihar where wherever you go you see <laughs> Buddhist sites and now that I know I can tell you and you were born in one of the also. one of the sites of the miracles right Vaishali is a site of a famous <laughs> miracle right yeah so yeah. so there is there is that link too yeah so yeah I mean th those are the things that have shaped my um, scholarship and and how I came to study of Buddhism mm -hmm. and then and for our it listeners who might not know, JNU is Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi, the best university Delhi. in India. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is, it yeah. is uh, one of the good institutions. Um, and it is known for its um, Department of Historical, Center for Historical Studies, mm. which, which um, where you get very rigorous training uh, for your master's program. So that definitely played an important role and shaped my academic mm -hmm. uh, course. The story of the decline of Buddhism in India um, is one that, that I would love to hear your feelings, your thoughts and feelings about how a more nuanced and complicated picture of that can emerge from better study. Because for those who 
maybe haven't been exposed to it as much. There's a longstanding kind of historical myth that, you know, Buddhism ended in the 12th century abruptly and completely, and that that was a result of the incursion, how it's described uh, in some texts, of Islam to the subcontinent or the growth of, of and of course, that's, that's a dangerous kind of narrative to continue propagating, especially in moments like ours where we're still seeing a lot of, um, you know, continued racialization and uh, racism against particular religious groups and specifically Islamophobia. So what what do you think a better study of that period of decline could could show? Well, I think um, this is again rooted in historiography, as you pointed out. I mean, Islamophobia being one, the way scholars have studied Islamic sources literally without carefully evaluating these sources is another and then it's also linked to the way history of Buddhism has been conducted, where we have tried to fit in Buddhism in the early historic and early medieval period. So India is about, I mean, it's again coming out from the British frame of Indian history, where we have the Hindu history, the Islamic history, and then the modern history, right? And Hindu history is until 13th century, until the Islamic forces appear in the subcontinent, um, in the central, northern and central India, unlike other parts. I mean, Islam arrives in India quite early, I would say, I mean, the Kerala and since very early on. But for scholars studying Buddhism, Buddhism, there is a, this is a frame in which even when they are excavating, they are looking at the sites as if they declined in the 13th century. They don't really look at 13th century carefully. So that's what we need to do. We need to get out of these structures of scholarship and, and reevaluate the material that is there. So I have published one article on that where I have looked at how scholars studying Islamic sources have continued to emphasize the literal reading, whereas scholars studying Buddhism have drawn on the nationalist writing in the 19th and the 20th century to make that argument that, oh, Hinduism was so dominant that it began to marginalize Buddhism and then Islam came in and that destroyed the remaining so those are the two main streams of argument. If you look at sites like Nalanda, for instance, we don't even know what Nalanda looked like in the 10th and 11th century. Mm-hmm. We have no understanding of the layer in the 10th or 11th century. What we have is, oh, there is one monolithic understanding of early medieval Nalanda, which is from the Gupta period to the 12th century and 13th century. Islam comes in, Bhaktiar Khili comes in and he destroys Nalanda. I mean, if you look at the, the account that is there in the Islamic text, you realize that it's not even a first-hand account. It's written at a particular point of time, 60 years later, 1260, I think. And it's a hearsay account on which the scholar writing the account of Minhaj bases his analysis argument on. So we need to move away from that and look at the material culture, evaluate the material culture carefully, and then... If you look at, say, Tibetan texts, Dharma Swamin is there in both Kaya and he's in Nalanda. He lives at both the places. He's there in both Kaya and he talks about the fear of Muslim attacks, but he, they don't really destroy anything. There is no account. And he's there in the 1230, between 1234 and 1236. Hmm. Then he spends two years at Nalanda. So, and there are these monasteries in Nalanda where people continue to come. Similarly, at Bodh Gaya, we have people from Myanmar and other Buddhist places coming and those accounts are there, right? The problem there is that since scholars have said early medieval, for the early medieval period, there is no lay Buddhism. So the, the presence of laity is simply unrecognized. People don't even look for laity in and around the context. I mean, if there is such a huge institution like Bodhkaya or Nalanda for such a long period of time, they would nev- know how to negotiate with political instability because you cannot expect them not to know about political instability and survive for seven or 800 or 1,000 years, mm-hmm. right? So we, these are the questions that we need to think about. And we often correlate them with, oh, Palas are Buddhist, and that's why. But if you look at inscriptions of Palas, Pala is this major dynasty in the eastern India between the 8th and the 12th century, and you realize that majority of the inscriptions, donative inscriptions from Palas are not to Buddhist institutions, but to Hindu institutions, mm-hmm. Hindus. So, so then we need to look for the local political networks and how Sangha relates with them. And the moment you start looking at local political institutions in Sangha, a very different picture emerges where Buddhism 
is constantly, or Buddhist institutions are constantly in dialogue with these local institutions who continue to make land grants, who continue to work with the Sangha. And Sangha, at the end of the day, has some prestige because it has been there for such a long time as a continuing institution. So what happened to these continuing institutions is something mm-hmm. that people don't really think about. They often go by the overarching pre-existing historiographical narratives, which shapes the scholarship. And I think that's what we need to dismantle. And that can only come if we approach the, if we do micro history and do history from below, where you begin to look at the material culture on the ground and and build up your theory on the basis of what you see on the ground, emerging yeah. from the ground, rather than the top down, which has shaped the scholarship. And then we also need somebody to, no Islamic sources and Buddhist sources to see that and bring dialogue. them together, not look at them separately. And exactly. I mean that that's again the discipline and how um, these disciplinary formulations or formations have shaped scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Right? So even if I mean even people like um, Richard Eaton, when they write about Islam and destruction of Hindu institutions, right? They can look at Islamic sources, but they don't really work with the Buddhist sources. And mm-hmm. if they work, a very different picture will emerge. Yeah, I think. of course. Do you have any plans to take your students to India? Or have you ever done that? Take an undergraduate students to India? Well, um, we did have previously a semester study abroad program of our own, which was a, a collaborative framework with a couple of other liberal arts schools in the area. But right now we are thinking about a two to three week program, maybe to different regions um, of South Asia. And this is something that we are still debating and discussing, and mm-hmm. it may evolve. Mm-hmm. And if it evolves, then I would love to take them to a place like Bodhkaya mm-hmm. or, or or even Bombay. I mean, there are all these fantastic Buddhist caves in the city of Bombay mm-hmm. that, that people don't know about or don't go to, mm-hmm. sites like Kanheri, and where you can spend two weeks studying the, the richness or the embedded nature of embedded material nature of Buddhism. Yes. So that's something that we are debating and, and thinking about, and it may eventually happen. To, to kind of summarize our conversation today, which has been really fruitful and interesting, what do you th- where do you th- see your teaching developing? What would you like to continue to cultivate in the coming years? Well, I mean, this course on Buddhism business state is exciting mm-hmm. um, for me, and it's one way for me to relate my one of the research projects that I am doing with scholars in uh, US and Japan about history of Buddhism between 5th and 12th century. Mm-hmm. This is linked to how early medieval, to understand early medieval Buddhism and the reasons for its decline. And again, the theory of decline is something that has been heavily perpetuated without careful study of the 12th, 13th and 14th century. Sure. And, and, and that's uh, an area of focus that I would like to uh, explore in future. And secondly, so, so that's one side. And then the second is the virtual, uh, the digital study of Buddhism, digital human, human humanities project on the Sacred Center, where I would like to somehow make Bodhgaya more accessible by relating, by creating a detailed database which um, links all the material that are there in different museums. I think these museums are also um, scanning their images, their their sculptures, and putting them online. Maybe soon we will have a platform to correlate the digital, all of these digital images on one platform. But at the same time, I have my own images, and I have been in conversation with scholars who have worked on Bodhkaya or other sites in the area for last uh, 40 years, I would say. I mean, mm-hmm. talk to uh, Janice Leosko and uh, Rick Arthur. Mm-hmm. And it'll be good if I can get some of their pictures to to compare and contrast uh, how Bodhgaya was in 1980s, how Bodhgaya was in 90s and early 2000s and now. And then with uh, Professor Asher, you can go all the way up. 70s and 60s yeah late 60s early 60s yeah amazing yeah Yeah. so that that would be another area um that i think i would like to build build upon well thank you so much for speaking with us today um abhishek thank you so much for taking the time out and sharing with us about your teaching thank you sarah thank you for including me in the podcast and yeah i look forward to our continued conversation absolutely 
thank you to Abhishek for sharing so much with us that day and for speaking so honestly about your teaching. We wish you very well as you continue to learn and grow as a teacher. Thank you all so much for listening and being here with us for this conversation. For reference to the resources that we discussed in this episode, please be sure to check our show notes. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, The Circled Square. This has been an interesting conversation about how to teach effectively with material culture and with digital humanities projects. So we'd love to know your thoughts about ways that you've tried this in the class. More broadly, we'd love to hear from you about this podcast or anything related to teaching Buddhist studies. So please get in touch on our website, send us an email, find us on Facebook. Let us know about your questions. A very big special thanks to our creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, who's in charge of making these podcasts here in Toronto. And thank you for listening. Be well.